Father, already we have tasted and seen that you are good. You have made that abundantly clear to us in your son, Jesus. Now, as we turn to your word, uh, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would uh, not just understand it, but that we would believe it and love it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today's reading of God's word will come from John 4, 1 through 45. This can be found in the Pew Bible, page 888 through 889, or the following Jesus Bible, 1,143 through 1,145. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will teach us all things. Jesus said to her, 
I who you speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out to the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent to you, reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all did really good. That was a long Bible reading, wasn't it? Miss Brittany is going to walk you guys over, so let's follow Miss Brittany for children's worship and nursery. If you're visiting here with us today and you have little ones who will be going over for our children's ministry, we ask that one parent or grandparent go over with them to get them registered with our volunteers. Uh, We want to make sure they got your information and uh, get all that squared away. So, who are your enemies? If you had to call their names or faces to your mind, I I hope you don't have any enemies. uh, But I know that's not the case for all of us. Maybe that's not the case for any of us. So I ask again, who are your enemies? If you like to take notes or space in the back of your worship guide, there are some blanks to fill in. Here's the first blank in your worship guide. The people we consider our enemies are often the people who are most unlike us. The people that it's easiest to consider our enemies are often the people who are most unlike us. People who are different from us. I mean, when you think of stereotypical opponents in your mind, enemies of one another, who who do we think of? Who are the stereotypical enemies of one another? Rich and poor. Majority and minority. 
Democrat and Republican, righteous and sinful, men and women, even cowboys and Indians, right? It's our differences that keep us apart, that make it easy to misunderstand one another, to mischaracterize one another, and even to hate each other. And in our text today, we see Jesus with someone who, according to that principle, should have been his enemy. This woman was someone that he shouldn't be caught dead with. Why not? What was wrong with her? Well, for starters, she was a woman. And in ancient times, women were often relegated to the social status of slaves. That's reflected in the way the disciples respond when they come and find Jesus talking to a woman. It says they marveled that he was talking with a woman. So she was something that culturally wouldn't necessarily be an enemy, but at the very least would be someone very below Jesus. But there's more than that. She was also a Samaritan. And the Jews hated Samaritans. Very long story short. The Samaritans were the offspring of Jews and Assyrians who were old, old enemies of Israel. So the Jews, when they looked at the Samaritans, they considered them mixed breeds, unclean. So she's got two strikes against her. She's a woman, which meant he shouldn't be associating with her. And she's also a Samaritan, definitely now his enemy. They were very different. But there was more reason for division between the two of them. She was a publicly known sinner. She's gone through five husbands. Now she's living with a guy who's not her husband. We don't know any more details besides that. It's very possible, given the culture that she lived in, that she was actually the victim in every one of those relationships. We don't know. What we do know is how she was perceived among her own people. Her own people considered her an adulterer and a fornicator. She carried a lot of public shame. Look at the text at verses 6 and 7 and see where this woman finds herself. Verse 6 says, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So this woman comes at the sixth hour, which is noon. This is one of the hottest times of the day, and she comes by herself, which was not normal. Normally, women and children would go to get water early in the morning while it was still cool, while you didn't need much water yet, but she comes later by herself. Why? There's a lot of plausible explanations. But the one that I find the most compelling is that she came alone because she didn't want to deal with the other women. She didn't want to hear their snide remarks. She didn't want to hear, uh, see their judgy looks. She's an ostracized sinner among her own people. And now she's here in the presence of the one righteous man. Surely these two should be enemies. But there's even more. She wasn't theologically orthodox on her views about where people should go to worship God. So this interaction between Jesus and this woman should seem crazy to us from a social perspective, from a cultural perspective, even from a religious perspective, if you want to put it in a modern context, imagine one of modern-day Israel's religious and political leaders going to an outcast among the Palestinians and giving them the time of day, crossing that boundary socially, geographically, religiously, and loving them. That's what we're seeing here. It's wild. But here's what their conversation demonstrates. The gospel of Jesus calls me 
and you to love our enemies like family. The gospel of Jesus calls me to love my enemies like family. So let's look at two things. First, let's see how in our text Jesus loves this woman and those who should be his enemies, how he loves them like family. And then second, I want to see how he invites us to do the same. Here's the next blank in your worship guide if you're taking notes. Jesus loved his enemies like family. He loved his enemies like family. So how do we see Jesus treating this woman like family rather than like an enemy? Here's your next blank. First, he went out of his way to meet her, to spend time with her, and to build a relationship. He went out of his way to meet her, to spend time with her, and to build a relationship. Most of you know I'm a huge nerd. Um, A lot of you don't because we have a lot of folks visiting today. I'm, I'm a huge nerd. Whatever you think a nerd is, just go ahead and multiply that times 12. Uh, last October, I, I visited Fort Worth for a card gaming tournament. It was me and uh, I think about a thousand of my closest friends playing cards. Don't worry, I placed 166th. Um, that's not good uh, if you can't, can't count. Anyway, my dad recently moved to Olney, Texas, which is about two hours northwest of Fort Worth. So after the tournament, I made a four-hour round trip to go visit him. Four hours is a lot of time to spend in the car. But I didn't mind. Why? Because he's my dad. I, I love him. It's not a, a pain. I'm already that far. <laughs> Why not go the extra two hours that way and the two hours back? We go out of our way for the people that we care about. And that's what Jesus did for this woman. Look back at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. The Greek literally says it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. That's weird. Let me help you with the the geography. So Judea uh, is where Jesus was most opposed, eventually where Jesus would be killed. That was the southern region of Israel. Galilee is the northern region where Jesus was pretty warmly received, where he did a lot of his miracles. And right in the middle is Samaria. Now, most Jews, if they were traveling from Judea to Galilee or back, they wouldn't go through Samaria. Because to do so, to be among the Samaritans was being among your enemies. It would make you unclean. And so they would go all the way around to get to where they were going. But Jesus doesn't do that. It says he had to go through Samaria. Why is that? Because he had somebody to see. His interaction with this woman was no surprise to him. He knew exactly where he was going. He knew to whom he was going. In his mind, he had an appointment set whether she knew it or not. This is the first way that Jesus treated this woman like family. He gave her the time of day. He wanted to know her. He wanted a relationship with her, even though she was shockingly different. And even though doing what he did would have besmirched him in the eye of the public, he went out of his way. But then, here's your next blank. He gave her the same invitation that he had previously given to someone who was like him, namely Nicodemus, who we saw last month. He gave her the same invitation that he gave to someone who was like him. So if you remember back in March, we spent two weeks on Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? He was two things, mainly. He was a religious conservative, and he was a leader of the Jews. 
Jesus, when you take him in the context of his day, he was very conservative compared to a lot of Jewish teachers at that time. So he would have been a a religious conservative just like Nicodemus. And what did he come to do? To be the king of the Jews. So you would think that him and Nicodemus would be two peas in a pod. These guys were very similar, not much different. And yet the invitation that Jesus gives to the Samaritan woman who's so different from him is shockingly similar to the invitation that he had given to Nicodemus. Let's look at verses 10 through 15, and then we'll jump down to verse 19. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And I'll jump forward to verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. This is after he told her about her private life. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This conversation with this woman feels like a continuation of the conversation with Nicodemus. He talks about a lot of these same things. He talks about water. He talks about spirit. He talks about eternal life. The important thing is he tells Nicodemus that if he will believe in Jesus, that he too can live forever. And Jesus offers the same thing, this same eternal life. Even he promises the Holy Spirit that God himself will come alongside you and give you this satisfying joy within you that will never stop. He offers God himself to this woman who should be considered not just an enemy of Jesus, not just an enemy of Israel, but an enemy of God. Let's think back on that conversation with Nicodemus. What had Jesus told him? Look in your worship guide. It's printed there for you. He told me he was an enemy of God too. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I skipped ahead. I w- I'm going to dwell here anyway. So turn back a page. I'm, sk- I'm skipping around now on my outline, so who knows where this is going to go. Chapter 3, verse 16 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I spent a lot of time on that one sermon trying to explain what what does he mean by world? Who remembers what Jesus means in the gospel of John and the letters of John when they're talking about the world? You remember? It's enemies, right. So the world, is he's not saying God loves every human being, though he does. What he's saying is the world is a broken, messed up, torn up place, and we're the ones that are 
continually messing it up. God looks at his enemies. He looks at enemy territory. And rather than hating them, rather than wanting to absolutely destroy them, he loves them. He says that to Nicodemus, the guy who's similar to him. Here's a theological sidebar. That's what is in the worship guide. It's your next blank. It doesn't matter how similar a person is to Jesus in the grand scheme of eternity. We're all worthy of being counted enemies of God because of sin. We're all selfish. We're all prideful. We're all hurtful. We all break the world. Nicodemus doesn't look like a sinner. And the Samaritan woman carries her shame publicly. And yet Jesus treats them both the same. He invites them both to find joy and forgiveness and eternal life. And how does he do it? By offering himself... In relationship to them, he offers them eternal life through him. He treats her like family. But that's not all. Here's your next blank. He didn't handle her with baby gloves, but he told her the truth. He didn't handle her with baby gloves. He told her the truth. That's another way he loved her like family. So Jesus is no milk toast evangelist. He doesn't pull his punch with Nicodemus, the guy that's similar to him. But he doesn't pull his punch with this woman either. He tells her the plain truth. That she probably didn't want to hear. But I don't, I don't want to oversell it either. How did Jesus talk to her? Here's your next blank. Jesus told the truth without being a jerk. <laughs> Do you know that can be done? <laughs> Jesus told the truth without being a jerk. He doesn't call her trash and shame her. He doesn't call her a tribal racial epithet. He doesn't say she's stupid for believing what she believes. He doesn't even say that she's wrong. He's actually more offensive to Nicodemus than he is to her, which reveals something not just about God the Son, but something about God the Father. God is tender toward the marginalized, the forgotten, and the sinner. The Samaritan woman is a bruised reed. She's wounded by her own people and by the shame that she carries. So Jesus, even though he tells her hard truths, he does it in a way that's not going to worsen the wound. He addresses the elephants in the room. He tells her that she needs eternal life and that she doesn't yet have it. He addresses her moral and personal failures without rubbing her face in it. He even contradicts her doctrinal errors in a way that doesn't make her seem less than. He tells the truth without being a jerk. Why? Because he loves her. And that's the whole idea. Jesus loves his enemies like their family. He cares about the whole person. Jesus doesn't want to fix her morals. He doesn't want to fix her doctrinal error. He doesn't want her to become a Jew. He wants to know her. He wants to be in relationship with her. He wants her to have eternal life. The other stuff is going to shake out in the mix. Here's your next blank. Jesus addressed people's wounds, fears, and doubts without breaking them. He stepped into their pain, into their sin, into their mess with them. That's how Jesus tells people the truth. Her problem is not hers to fix anymore. It's not hers to deal with by herself. It's his burden to carry for her. It's his burden to relieve from her shoulders. This is the gospel. The burden of personal sin, of social marginalization, of doctrinal error. Jesus steps into all of it. Why? To set us free. To help us find eternal life, new life, freedom from our past, freedom from the labels that are placed upon us. To find our identity in Christ alone. The one who loves us.
He told her the truth because he loved her and because he had the answers to the burdens that she was carrying. Here's something so shocking in our text that I have to point it out. Jesus didn't treat everybody the same way. He acts differently with different people at different times. And he says something to this woman, this woman who should have been his enemy. He tells her something that he didn't tell Nicodemus, the guy who was very similar to him. He tells her something he hasn't even told his disciples yet. What does he tell her? Look at verses 19 through 26. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, I told you it's going to happen. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. He'll clear all this stuff up. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is crazy. Here's your next blank. The first clear declaration of Jesus that he is the king of Israel, come to save God's people and to restore the world, is spoken tenderly to an enemy of God in Israel. Who does he make the great revelation to? I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's here to save Israel and the world. He tells this woman, this Samaritan, this sinner, one who should be his enemy, what is it about this woman? He hasn't told Peter yet. He hasn't told John, the author of this book yet. They'd heard it from John the Baptist, but not from Jesus' own mouth. I mean, he's really cagey about who he shares this with. And he reveals this great, dangerous truth that he was the Messiah of God. Why tell her? I have no other answer except he wanted to. He loved her. And he wanted her to have eternal life in him. He wanted her to be his disciple. This goes against every social moray of his time, but Jesus wanted her. And what happened? Jesus treated her like family. He loved her like no one else ever had, like none of her husbands had, like the man she was living with had not. He loved her, and in him she found eternal life. She believed. Look at verse 11 through 14. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well's deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus offers her a water that will leave her never thirsty. I'm going to take a sip of water. Proof. He wasn't talking about literal thirst. He says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit who will satisfy you more deeply than any cool glass of water will. And do you notice what happens at the end of the story? She never draws water from the well. She's not thirsty anymore. Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, 
What do you seek or why are you talking with her? They'd learned their lesson by now. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She left her water pot behind. She didn't even notice her thirst anymore because she'd found something more satisfying. God himself, the Messiah, had taken the time to love her, to know her, to tell her the truth, to invite her into the cleansing water of his love. He demanded nothing from her but to believe what he was saying. Believe what he said and everything else is handled. And what does she do then? She becomes the first great missionary to the Samaritans. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Here's your next blank. When Jesus loves his enemies like family, they become a part of his family. When Jesus loves his enemies like family, they become a part of his family. Is this woman perfect now? No, no. She's still a mess. (laughs) Just like you, just like me, she's in process. But the most important part is handled. She knows Jesus. She trusts Jesus, and she's now living in response to him. She trusts his word, and she's living in kind. Jesus loved his enemies so much that he was not content with them being his enemies. He wants them to be his family. In fact, he died so that that could be the case. Is that not the message of John 3 that we saw three weeks ago? Here's where I skipped ahead. I'm just going to keep going. Look in your worship guide. I've got it printed beyond where I read. For God so loved the world, his enemies, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is the gospel of Jesus. We're all counted enemies because of our sin. We're selfish, prideful people who've made a mess of our relationships, who've made a mess of our world. God created this world good and we messed it up. We still mess it up. We set ourselves up as the kings and queens of this world and our communities and ourselves. We are enemies of God. That's the world. Those are the people that God loves. He sees his enemies. He sees the territory that we inhabit. And rather than hating us, he loves us. He loved us enough to send his son to die as a substitute in our place. Jesus was condemned on the cross as an enemy of God. So that if you believe in him, you can be counted a member of the family of God. Jesus loved his enemies like family. That's the very essence of the gospel. Paul said it in Romans chapter 5. Look in your worship guide. It says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Friends, this is the gospel that we profess to believe. That we were once enemies of God, but because of the love and sacrificial death of Jesus, we have been made into his family. So the question, Christian, is what will you now do with your enemies? What will you do with the ones who are different from you? 
How will you treat the ones whom it's easy to misrepresent, to misunderstand, to avoid, or even to hate? If we were once God's enemies and he loved us, how should we treat our enemies? If we use the gospel as our basis for how we see ourselves, how we see our neighbors, how we see our world, how must we treat the people who are most unlike us? Here's your next blank. The gospel of Jesus demands that I love my enemies like family. The gospel demands that I love my enemies like family. When Jesus' disciples show up, and find Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman, there's an interesting interaction that occurs. And this paragraph is directed to every Christian in this room, to every person who professes to follow Christ. And what does Jesus say? Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I found food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, anyone else or anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest already The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus uh, isn't hungry anymore. Why? Here's your next blank. What satisfied Jesus more than anything, was making family of his enemies. That's what satisfied him. What satisfied Jesus more than anything was making family of his enemies. What made Jesus feel happy? What made Jesus feel satisfied, purposeful, worthwhile? It was doing what his father sent him to do, and it was loving his enemies in a way that they loved him in return. The disciples offer him food, and he says, I'm not hungry anymore, because what really satisfied him, his food, was what he had just done. He did the work the Father gave him, the work of saving his enemies. What satisfies you? What moves you? What gives you purpose? What makes you happy? We talked about that some last week, trying to find our purpose. Jesus answers that question here. Your purpose for living is love. Loving God and loving neighbor. If you don't have those two loves for God and neighbor, then you have not fulfilled your created purpose. And as the Good Samaritan parable shows us, you can't love your neighbor without also loving your enemies. Is that what satisfies you? Loving your neighbors and your enemies like Christ loved this woman, loving them so much that they become a part of your family. Too often the satisfaction that we seek is being right being better off than our enemies, being in power, being vindicated, being on top. That's not the gospel. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus humbled himself and interacted with a woman that according to the social mores of his day would make him unclean. Jesus didn't care. Jesus had nothing to lose except her. 
She was the priority. He wanted her. What satisfies you? The gospel of Jesus calls us to live and to love as Jesus did, which means loving our enemies in a way that they will come to be a part of our family. The gospel of Jesus demands that we love our enemies like family. But that means more than just being a nice guy. It means more than just being kind. It means actually inviting them to be a part of the family. That's how Jesus ends this teaching to his disciples. Look, the field is white to the harvest. Go and reap. What's he talking about? He said, I've been filled. I'm not hungry anymore. What was it that fed me? These fields out here. I got some of this grain. And what is this grain? All these enemies, these Samaritans that you hate, I love them. So let's go get them. Let's go get them together. Here's your last blank. Jesus calls us to find deep joy in people coming to trust that Jesus is the Christ, regardless of how different they are from us. Jesus calls us to find deep joy in people coming to trust that Jesus is the Christ, regardless of how different they are from us. When Christians only hang out with people who are like them, they fail to be Christ-like. When Christians only associate with people they agree with, they're not fulfilling their purpose. The whole idea of the gospel is that God is very much unlike us And he drew near to us. He became like his enemies so that he could save us. So let us reject the Christian cultural bubble in which most evangelicals live and instead be a good neighbor. If we love everyone, even those who are radically different from us, even our enemies, we hope that some of them are going to join the family. Every week here at church, we say our our church's mission statement. You probably got it memorized. Let's say it together. Ready? Faith Presbyterian Church, what is our mission? We glorify God by following the Holy Spirit and loving like Jesus. What does it mean to love like Jesus? It means to go out of your way to build relationships with people who are unlike us, who perhaps are not loved by others. It means to love them unconditionally with no strings attached. It also means to invite them to trust Jesus and to have eternal life. Guess what? This woman believed, but in chapter 3, Nicodemus didn't yet. Did Jesus reject either of them when they didn't believe the gospel? He said, get out of my face. I don't want to be around you anymore. No, he loved them. He told them the truth without being a jerk. He loved them deeply, addressing their wounds, fears, and doubts without breaking them. He stepped into their pain, into their sin, into their mess with them. He loved them like family with the hopes that they would join the family. He calls us to do the same. The gospel of Jesus demands that I love my enemies like family. So what about you? Who are your enemies? Who are the people in your life that are least like you? Who are the people whom it would be costly to connect with so that you might love them? Friends, those are people with whom Jesus wants to share his love. Could it be that he wants to share his love with them through you? The gospel of Jesus demands that I love my enemies like family. So how do I, how do you need to repent of the pride of the disciples? How do we need to approach our enemies on their turf, on their terms? How do we need to love them and treat them like family?
God, this is not a, 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 a message that comes easily to any of us. It seems hardwired into our bodies and our brains. We have to prove ourselves. We have to be better. We have to be right. We've got to be respected. Lord Jesus, you, you just didn't care about that. On the cross, you hung naked, suffering for sins that you didn't commit. Help us to be willing to be exposed, to look foolish, to be ignored. Give us the courage to love, even when it's costly and hard to do so. Father, we also know that the scriptures tell us that every human being deeply needs love. We need each other. So help us, Lord, as we go, as we demonstrate love, as we speak the truth of the gospel to our neighbors. We pray, Lord, that they would experience you in us and that in those interactions we would actually find something more satisfying than any crawfish boil, real food, deep joy through telling others the good news of Jesus and loving them as you love. Thank you, Father, for giving us this, this story in your word. Thank you, Jesus, for the example you set. Now help us to trust you and to follow you. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.